Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Jen Ferguson, who is the founder of Sales 911. Jen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Marcus. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. So, Jen, could you give a quick 30 seconds, 60 seconds on your background and how you got to where you are? Sure. I actually started in retail management. I was in college when I had an opportunity to travel the country and open new stores. So I, you know, I took that opportunity with the paper factory and landed in Florida and went up and down the East Coast opening new stores when they needed a new store. I actually got my first taste of B2B sales when I um, entered the cigar industry as a general manager for Cigar Bar, as well as, you know, a restaurant and retail shop. And we had a private club. And the coolest thing about this club was, you know, we had corporate members who would basically pay to be able to come and hang out in this smoke-filled room. (laughs) Obviously, you know, we had humidifiers and all the things to make it not so smoke-filled, but The idea was they were just coming to enjoy their cigars in this place with the leather couches and in a really like dark, moody room. And so it was really awesome to just see sort of that wheeling and dealing. And I was like, what is with this? At one point, I actually had someone come in who was not a cigar smoker, who had no interest in cigars whatsoever for a personal membership. And they were like a consultant. And I was like, you know, why? You don't smoke cigars. And she was just like, I want to be able to network with those people. I can never reach those people. (laughs) And so she got like just a membership for herself. She never used the locker, never did anything with it other than to hang out in the room where all of these CEOs and the cigar smokers were. And really just got to know people and the networking. And I thought that is so cool. So when I had an opportunity to go into, you know, B2B sales, I was like, yes, I definitely want to explore that because that relationship building and, and what I saw there was just sort of so interesting to me. Eventually, I got into software sales where, you know, I brought new products to market, industry specific accounting solutions. And then leadership. And now, you know, as someone who is impacted by COVID-19, I always did sort of this consulting thing on the side, decided to actually turn it into a company. So that's what Sales 911 is about. It's really about helping people with their pipeline, building their their revenue engine. And um, but I'm also job seeking. So, you know, if the right opportunity comes along, that's a good fit for me. That's something I'm also exploring. That's probably longer than you meant, right? (laughs) It it was, but it was very interesting. So tell me this. What did you learn about how people do business in a social setting? Yeah. I mean, it was all about really the relationships. You know, half the time I never understood what it was they were selling when they signed a contract. What I did understand were who were the ones that were making like the really good connections. So, I mean, we would rent out our our boardroom. We had a boardroom there. And, you know, they would go and they would just like mingle and be friends. And it was never about what they were selling. I mean, I saw contracts signed, couldn't tell you what they were for. But it was that relationship building that was what mattered. 
And so I thought that was super interesting. Interesting that, uh, you know, because it's the cigar equivalent of the golf course, I guess. So tell me this then, in terms of the work that you've been doing with SDRs, with new business teams, what are the most common questions that you're being asked? Yeah, I mean, just how to get started, how to build a sales development team from scratch. So, you know, how do you determine what you do every step in the process? And I always suggest, you know, starting out with, you know, actually putting in some work, understanding what your inbound and outbound should look like, building a playbook so that the expectations are super clear, and then testing, always be testing everything from what level of personalization is going to work, what kind of omni-channel approach works best for your target market, and just finding the right person to help lead you into that effort. So if we look at the development of the playbook, what tips and advice can you give people to develop a good SDR playbook? Yeah, I mean, it's all about process, you know, understanding, you know, where it's going to go from marketing, right? If it's inbound to sales development, then from sales development to AEs and making sure that every step of the process is documented and that it's refined for the buyer, not necessarily your sales process. And, you know, no matter what, you want to own the sales process, but you also want to be cognizant of how your buyer wants to buy and understanding, you know, their needs. So basically the documentation, but also, you know, start off with some simple scripts and and level up to personalization. I think the biggest thing about getting like an SDR ramped up is all about getting them on the phone fast and then adding to their skills, right? So you want them to be able to get on the phone, maybe with people who, for whatever reason, didn't make it to, to a meeting or older leads where they're just having conversations and then eventually over time, leveling up, personalizing, making sure that they're getting the depth of experience that they need to actually be successful. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about good conversations. So two of the areas that I think the sales profession are awful at, by and large, are listening and asking quality, insightful questions. So when you're working with SDR teams, what are you teaching them about the skill of listening? Yeah, that they need to be able to do active listening. So listening to understand versus listening to respond. That they could, if they don't know what to say, after they've taken everything in, they can just mirror So go with Chris Voss's, you know, never split the difference methodology of just mirroring the last three words so that you're not so focused on what you're saying next, but really spending the time to to listen to understand, understand what they're saying. And in terms of questioning? In questioning? Yeah, just exploring. I mean, you need to explore not only why are they talking to you in the first place, why have they invested the time to even give you this 10 minutes, right? But what the problem is, how it impacts them, how it impacts them personally, as well as their career, how it impacts the company, who are all the people who are impacted. I find that 
in a lot of cases, you know, you have to understand that it's not just about that one person. There are key stakeholders throughout an organization and understanding that while that person you you have on the phone in that moment might want to make a change, doesn't mean everyone within their organization does. So you have to sort of get down to understand all of the variables and why the pain, because, you know, back in the day, I remember everybody was like, oh, I want an ROI presentation. And so you're always trying to come up with the numbers. And like over the years, I've learned it's not about what it costs or the money you're going to save. It's about how this problem impacts you and how big of a pain it is. I mean, if it's a giant pain, then they have to make a change quick. If it's just a little pain, well, then it's not going to be as important to them in the overall scheme of things. And how much of a pain it is for each different stakeholder also matters, you know? I think you've touched on two critically important points here. One is that even in a relatively small organization, there are often multiple influencers and stakeholders. And the average salesperson is speaking to between 1.6 and 1.9 prospects within the buyer organization. On average, for around 300, our research shows that you need to have 3.43 influencers covered. So, you know, three to four. In a two to 400 person business, 4.85. So roughly five people should be involved. In 400 to 1,000, it's nearly six people. And in a thousand plus organization, it's seven plus. And that was pre-COVID. So chances are any non-essential buying decision, they're not going to want to drink from the poison chalice and they're going to want to spread the risk. So those numbers need to be up. And I think you touched on another really important point, which is that you need to listen out for the collective situation. What's the shared problem? that the business across the board is feeling and who else is affected? Because I think too often salespeople are very transactional. They're so focused on the product. No one in the history of humanity has or ever will buy your product. They buy it because it's a solution to a series of problems or a problem that they have. And I think in terms of listening, I'd go one step further. And also in terms of your questioning, that you listen to gain insight and you question to deliver insight. Understanding alone, I don't believe is enough because in this kind of market in particular, we're seeing that over 60% of buy cycles end in the status quo. They don't change. Now, if you cannot find a reason for them to change, then essentially your biggest competitor is do nothing. Now, yeah, 100%. You have to create awareness. And if you're, you know, if they're not, especially if we're outbound, right? So in the case where they may not realize they have a problem or that there's a solution to this particular problem, you have to sort of identify and make them aware of it and then provide value along the way. Especially in outbound, that's important because there may be cases where they don't realize that there's a solution to the problem and then you can solve it. So I mean, it all depends on what what it is you're selling, right? It does, but I think there are three critical questions that every SDR needs to be have going through their mind, which is what significant issue 
is the prospect either undervaluing or not appreciating? What have they been working around for a while where they've been just wrapping duct tape around it and you know, or putting pl- um, a sticking plaster on the cancer? And they've just grown used to that as a way of doing business. And what do they not even realize is a problem? But if they ignore it, it's going to come and bite them in the back later. And I think when you get away from selling product and you stop selling selfishly and you're really focused on understanding why the buyer is at this point deciding even to investigate, then you need to understand where they are in that decision-making cycle. Are they gathering information? Are they defining the specification? Because those aren't real buyers until you can find an undiscovered need. And if you can't uncover that undiscovered need or that unrealized need, then chances are you're just going to be column fodder and you'll end up doing a lot of free consultancy. So if you look at the top SDRs, what were their habits that separated them from uh, the average? I would say that ability to really have a good conversation and like their the depth of value that they gave to, you know, their prospects. It's really making it a great buying experience, but also being able to add value along the way to sort of transition them into the sales cycle rather than abruptly throwing them, (laughs) trying to throw them into it, right? You know, at the end of the day, everybody wants to have a good experience. Absolutely. And I think given that the SDR is often the first human point of contact that a company or buyers have with a brand. It's critically important that those people are great at empathy. They need to be organized. They need to have a structure. And they need to focus on putting the customer before their own needs, which again, my experience of when I'm on the receiving end of outbound calls I'm frequently disappointed because it feels entirely invasive. It's not permission-based and it's selfish. And so the only thing going through my mind at that point is how quickly can I get this clown off the phone? And I think part of that is because salespeople and SDRs in particular don't really understand their rights as sellers. Have you given any thoughts to what the rights of an SDR are? Well. I mean, I don't know that they have rights. I like, I don't know that I've explored it that way. I do know that you need to proceed with while you want to have some passion for what you do and you want to make sure that you're creating a good experience. And that's not done by like pushing through the door and creating an awful disruption. You're going to disrupt and you need to disrupt, but you have you can do it in a way where you're having a good conversation and you're providing value that you're going for whether they're interested in having a conversation with you and you know massaging it over time with light touches rather than necessarily busting down the door and saying, Hey, hey, look at me because I'm ready for you to look at me and I want all of your time and attention. So, I mean, and sometimes that that takes, you know, first an email and and going into LinkedIn and commenting on something that they're posting and sort of working your way in rather than banging down the door. And you could do that in, you know, a number of ways to sort of massage yourself in there. 
you could talk about what something they've posted about or something they've care they care about to sort of try to understand and build that human connection with them because at the end of the day it's human to human yeah i i think one of the things that i'm seeing an awful lot of on linkedin is automation and that it's painfully obvious particularly when you get the same automated cut and paste message from the same people who you've turned down the last time so uh, again in terms of teaching junior salespeople who may be first or second job about the human being the other end of the phone what insights are you trying to help them to develop and learn about when they're making those calls uh, so that they're prepared and they understand what it's like to be that customer or be that prospect yeah i mean we do a lot of role playing when i do this for consulting it's it's really practice makes perfect right and you're never going to be perfect because there's always going to be a scenario that's going to come at you that you're not going to expect but you've got to really hone your craft and do the practice and try different things to to engage at a deeper level and to to really listen i mean you can't teach someone to listen you can teach someone to pause but to really express that empathy and understand the other person, you've got to really give them space, right? Space to speak, space to, to understand. So that's, that's important. I dispute that you can't teach someone to listen, but I think it's difficult. There are three books that I would urge everybody to read. One is Chris Voss's book that you've already mentioned, Never Split the Difference. Just Listen by Mark Goulston. And coming out in a couple of months is Karen Mangia's book, Listen Up. I think the three of those, are they should be prescribed reading for any salesperson and any manager of salespeople. Because the skill of listening is not just for selling, it's also for managing. I've never listened my way out of a sale. I've uh, talked my way out of plenty. But the problem is that listening is, it's taken for granted. And you shouldn't be listening to fill the gap. Miller Hyman did a fascinating bit of research about 10, 12 years ago. And they tracked the average length of time a salesperson could stay silent before they had to fill the void with the sound of their own voice. And it was 0.6 of a second. Uh, 0.6 of a second. Gong has recently released some stats on this as well. It's still 0.7 of a second. So it hasn't improved much in 15 years. Now. When you're listening, it's also very important that you listen to not only what's being said, but how it's being said. Uh, are you seeing any difference now that uh, we're in lockdown and more people are using video conferencing in terms of the quality of the conversations that people are having as a result of having the extra added dimension of being able to see people? Yeah, no, I think the quality of the conversation goes up like potentially because you have that face to face. So if you've gotten someone to agree to take the video call with you, you find out so much more. Funny, I, a number of years ago, had my first like video call, right, with Morgan Ingram. And uh, he, it was actually a prospecting call where it was me and my peer, you know, we were both leaders. And Morgan was, you know, talking to us about our training needs. 
And I had never done a video call before. You know, matter of fact, it was my first, very first exposure to Zoom. I found myself telling him so much. And I am not a good, like, you don't want to try to sell me anything, (laughs) you know, but having that face to face. And it was funny because my peer did not share his camera. He opted to just, you know, do, do the call where here I am, Morgan and and I are face to face. And I'm like, okay, this is like therapy. I'm, I've now, I've now spilled everything. And I'm like, this is it. This is, this is the, the wave of the future, that face to face connection. So from that point forward, anytime I had an opportunity to get anyone on a video call, I'm like, we're going video, you know? So well before this all happened, I recognize immediately the power of that that, you know, people generally just don't lie to your face. So you could find out good people. They don't, they don't lie. Someone who's willing to have a conversation and, you know, like I'm a heartfelt person. They're not typically going to look me in the face and lie. So I always found it so amazing that I could find out so much more just by, you know, the face, the face to face. (laughs) So a couple of useful tips for those of you who are listening. If you're doing video conferencing, start without video. If they go on to video, then you go on to video too. If they don't, start the conversation. And after you've built a little bit of rapport, say, Jen, would you mind if we move on to video? Uh, I find it easier to have the conversation and I think it's a little bit more natural. Once you've got them onto the video, then start building up the trust and when you feel that you've got enough trust, then say, Jen, in order that I can concentrate on what you're saying, and I don't have to take notes and I can review this later, would you mind if I record this? And gently take them onto the recording. I've never had anybody say that uh, they don't want the recording happen unless they're going to talk about something really private or really confidential. And at that point, they'll tell you, would you mind switching off the recording? And give them that option up front. If there's anything that you want to say off the record, let me know and I'll turn the recording off. That's a great tip. And since, you know, because I had started doing video before we were in a pandemic and it was sort of like a new thing at that point, I got used to asking them up front, would it be okay for us to have a video call rather than a regular call? Because that was so new then. Yeah. So it was sort of part of my my process of can we have a video call, <laughs> you know, that upfront agreement that we're going to meet via video. So that's a great tip right there. Thank you. Well, and um, uh, again, in the 14 15 weeks we've been in lockdown, yeah. I've uh, recorded every conversation. I'm doing anywhere between 4 and 8 hours of video calls a day. So it's absolutely possible. And people don't mind as long as you ask permission. And remember, different behavioral styles will have different preferences. If they're a bubbly, effervescent type, they're probably not going to mind going on to video. They'd prefer it. If they're very reserved, detail-orientated, then go slow and get their permission step by step. So if we look at those uh, other questions that you mentioned, one thing that you didn't touch on, but I'm pretty sure is close to your heart, is accountability. People hold themselves to account. What should you be measuring? And how do you put in place a good accountability process that doesn't feel like micromanagement or overly onerous, but will help the SDR move their performance forward? 
Yeah, no, I mean, and that's what I love a playbook for. It's really laying out those metrics that you're going to be held accountable for, whether that's 30 calls with personalization or more, you know, having that down and knowing what the deliverables are, how many appointments a week you should be getting, all of the metrics that you're going to be measured on in a crystal clear picture, sort of just takes out all of that, that guesswork because you know in advance. But additionally, holding people accountable, you know, having regular one-on-ones like weekly to see where you are and see what you're struggling with and give that coaching, find out what you could do as a leader to, to support them, any other resources, find out how you can help them achieve success. But Additionally, knowing where they want to go with their career journey and where they want to be and how to get there is also important to keep them inspired and motivated and to know where the big picture is for them, you know, as a as a team member. You've touched on a couple of really important points, which I see lacking in many managers, which is that, first of all, they measure lagging rather than leading indicators. Secondly, because they don't really understand the personal drivers and motivations of the individual, they can't tie those to their corporate objectives. The third is that they don't coach anywhere near enough. And you've mentioned role play several times. A lot of reps don't like role play, but you know, frankly, tough. It's part of their job. And if you don't practice intentionally with the uh, deliberate intent of improving, then you don't want to be practicing in front of a customer. You're, you know, it costs the company anywhere between 50 bucks and 300 bucks to get a lead in. How dare you not do your best work when you're burning through 10 or 20 leads? Now, that's six grand of the company's money that you burnt through because you didn't like to practice. That's unacceptable. Um, and I, I think the other piece is... Um, tech like uh, Refract and Gong, Chorus, uh, recording calls, and self-coaching. Um, you know, if you're on Zoom or Teams, record those calls, whether you've got the analytics or not, and, and painful as it might be, listen to yourself again. Listen to how the prospect responded. If you've got videos, see how they physically reacted to what you said. When did the objections occur? What did you do in the 30, 60, 90 seconds preceding the objection that created the conditions where the objection was created in the prospect's mind? Because prospects only object because you take them there. I think too often we don't take personal responsibility for our own improvement. So in terms of what you're teaching people uh, when you're uh, leading teams about taking personal responsibility. Do you mind giving me some insight into that? Yeah, I mean, you're, you have to take ownership of your number, whether you're an SDR or an AE. Maybe you're an AE with an SDR, it's still your number. So this idea of, you know, sitting around and waiting for the SDRs to hand you your, your, your deals is, you know, really, I think it's going to be a thing of the past. As, you know, we go into a recession, you know, I love sales development, but whether we're going to end up going back to the full sales cycle rep is is a reality that may, you know, may happen. And that's mostly because it's a, in some ways, a better buying experience. And so that ownership of 
look, you've got, you've got a number you're responsible for. You have activities and metrics and things that are going to get you there. But at the end of the day, it's your responsibility to make sure that you're doing everything you can to make that number. And while in some cases that is a good deal of pressure, you're, if you're putting in your best effort and you're always learning and growing and testing and, and trying new approaches and practicing, you're going to get there. You know, you're, you're putting in the work, but it, you have to recognize that, that it's your responsibility. I think you've touched on something else, though, which is really important, that the AE, the account exec, should be working with the SDR, the sales development rep who's generating the leads on their behalf for coaching and practice and making sure that that handover from the SDR to the AE is smooth and seamless and from the customer's perspective feels like a natural fit, a natural handover. What I've seen happen time and time again is that because of how people are measured and because of the inordinate pressure that the SDRs and the AEs are under, then what they do is they go for the uh, hitting the number rather than focusing on the quality. I, I did a post yesterday because I had my fourth call in the month where someone was being put under pressure despite the fact that they're one of the top performers in the entire organization within the EMEA region where they were being told their call rate's not high enough or their quote rate isn't high enough. Who cares? If you're 250% of quota, um, why are you wasting my time trying to put out more quotes when actually that doesn't matter? That doesn't move the needle uh, to the right. And so often where companies are so focused on metrics for audit purposes rather than to help the salespeople sell better, and to identify the areas where there is a coaching or training need, then they get distracted. So how do you protect your SDRs from acts of idiocy from above? Yeah, that's a really hard question because, you know, uh, I've seen it myself. I prefer a more personalized approach, right? So I don't know how many times we're looking at, like, my, my metric is, 30 calls, right? But personalized and you're, you know, reaching out on various channels and a, a CEO or, you know, an executive will come in and double the call volume. You know, that's easy. Just double it, you know? Yeah, you can do that, but you're not going to get the results. You're not going to get it. So in, in every case, I will have the team double it. And I myself will literally do cancel everything, cancel life, and I will do my approach. And I will show them these results versus these results and we'll go, okay. So I was able to produce this. They were able to produce this. This is more appointments. Wouldn't this be great over, you know, the 10 people you have over here? So, I, I mean, it's, you have to, in some cases, not only stand up for the SDRs, but actually show them because maybe they don't listen unless you show them. And that's another, that's another thing, you know, is sales cultures where you have leaders, right, that are 100% invested into their SDRs or their particular team, but are part of a larger sales organization. and don't necessarily have the same 
political capital or social capital to get their voices heard. So making sure that you have inclusive cultures to that everyone who, especially if they're leading a team, have that ability to say, that's not a great idea. Your results are going to go down. You're going to burn out your team. Morale is going to go down and you're not going to have the results you want anyway. So this points to a couple of um, useful insights. The first is that when you're building your sales process, your playbook, and the behaviors associated with um, what you're expecting your SDR and AE team to do is work backwards from the result that you intend and then uh, step by step to the point where they're actually picking up the phone, sending the email, connecting on LinkedIn. And do that in tandem with the customers. Make sure you're speaking to the customers that have bought and find out what they loved about the process, where the process jarred or felt uncomfortable for them. Speak to the people who didn't buy, the people who decided to go with a competitor, because very often it's down to the experience they have. When you're buying like for like, it's often down to the experience that the buyers have. Speak to people who fired you and find out why. Don't speak to the people in the middle because they find it difficult to express the real reasons why they buy or don't buy. Speak to the people at the extremes and make sure you're working backwards from the result that you want. So that then comes to your question or your point about culture. So Jen, how do you recruit for cultural fit? Actually, I don't. I look for culture ad which is is very different, you know, looking for people who bring something unique to the table, who bring a different type of outlook and a different personality and someone who is just different than the rest of the team because diversity of thought brings so much value to everything within an organization. I think if you recruit in your own image, you'll tend to recruit people who are weaker than you. And often where you see people recruit in their own image, it's a very good indicator that you have a brittle manager where their ego gets in the way. If um, you look at the teams that have good diversity in terms of gender, race, ethnicity, religious background, age, then what you end up with is a much richer three-dimensional understanding of your market. And you touched on something else as well which I think is really important, that everybody needs to have a voice. The SDRs need to be able to feed back and say, look, this is what I'm finding. I'm stuck here. How do we get past this? And where you see people encouraging that voice, then what you end up with is a much more well-rounded sales team who are able to adapt and flex. But where people come from a very specialized field... And this is where I have a major bugbear uh, with people recruiting for people with sector experience or product experience, because their views very blinkered. I'm working with three or four clients at the moment, all of whom are fantastic fast learners. You know, one, he built his recruitment business from scratch, never having worked in the data science or AI market. And he made a rip-roaring success of that. I've got another guy that I'm working with who's worked across seven different industries. And he keeps getting the pushback. Oh, you don't have experience in our industry. He doesn't damn well need it. 
He's so quick at learning. And my experience is within six conversations, you've got all the information that you need to be able to sell within a product set or within an industry. I've yet to come across an industry, whether it's defense, whether it's professional services, whether it's software, where you can't learn that stuff really quickly. And experience is the least important factor. What are your thoughts? No, I 100% agree. And especially when it comes to like sales and SDRs, there's so much potential in just like that ability to have a good conversation that really anything else in the industry can be taught. But bringing diversity and diverse ideas with people who just have that talent of being able to have good open conversations is just you know, it's amazing. Excellent. Okay. So let's take the subject of diversity a little bit further. As a profession, we are sadly lacking in enough women in sales. What do we have to do to encourage more women to go into the best profession on the planet? I mean, it's really, it starts with inclusion, right? In sales teams, if women's voices are heard, then you will hear it among all of these women's groups. You know, I'm part of Girls Club where I'm a mentor. I'm part of the National Association of Women Sales Professionals. We've got, you know, uh, the women in revenue, The and we're all trying to recruit more women into sales, but having good stories of, you know, it being inclusive environments is going to be a factor, right? So many women have tried sales and have left for customer success, where customer success is more women over men. And um, how do you get women back back into sales? You you get them to to hear good stories and hear about great environments. But at the end of the day, it needs to start with inclusion because if you don't have the inclusion, then what will happen is you'll bring more women in they'll see that they're not included, that their voices aren't heard, and they will run for the hills. I mean, if you don't have a good inclusive environment, that's going to happen. So you may have an uptick in women in sales for a couple months, but if you're not going to provide an environment where they can thrive and be celebrated, they're not going to stay. So it really needs to start with that inclusion and your your current culture and how you're listening to all of the, the people who have, have thoughts to share and within your organization as it is. You know, how many times have I heard about or even experienced it myself, you know, a woman sharing an idea in a room and then nobody saying a word, but the next guy will say the same idea in reworded in a different way. And suddenly it's rejoiced and celebrated as the most genius idea ever. That level of patronization must be really frustrating. I mean, surely at that point, you have to throw your toys out of the pram. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it. You, and what's crazy, though, is you get used to it. What's really crazy <sighs> is when you, get, when you get like, like you don't recognize it as a shocking thing anymore. Until you look back at it and go, that was really shocking. That was not right. And I even had it once at an industry event. Matter of fact, the last industry event that I went to where, you know, we broke up into little groups to talk about like a business challenge and how as a leader you would handle it. 
And I, you know, shared an idea and an SDR who went after me pretty much shared the same idea. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, these amazing SDRs, they have such amazing ideas. I was like, oh, wow. And so it happens. And having that inclusive environment where people are just recognized for the ideas that they bring and the impact that they make, and they're able to really thrive, you know, you gain so much. If there are any of you fossils out there that are still discriminating, let me be absolutely clear. The best managers I've ever known and the best salespeople I've ever known have been women. In fact, I look at my clients and they're all doing well. And average quota attainment, 140, 250% of quota during COVID. I have some standout salespeople and they're women and they're growing their business by 8,000% a year. And they are knocking the ball out of the park. I have one client who's gone from startup to over a million and a half in 12 months. And this was a one-woman business, which is now a 10-person business in 18 months. And she's just knocking the ball out of the park. And she's holding her own. Bear in mind, she'd never sold into the corporate market before. And you've got to understand that women constitute 52% of the population. If you do not tap into that talent pool, then you are derelict in your duty as a business leader. Why would you cut off 50% of the population? Same thing with non-white salespeople. If you cut them out, then now you're cutting out 80% of the global population, maybe 90. We have to get a bit savvier in our profession, looking at people from very diverse backgrounds, Because when you have diversity and inclusion, my pal uh, Rod Jefferson says diversity is being able to sit at the table. Uh, Inclusion is being able to order from the menu. And I think if you're not able to order from the menu, if you're not, uh, your opinion is diminished because of who you are and the color of your skin or your gender, you're missing out massively on a talent pool. And it is tough out there. Your job at the moment is to protect and grow the accounts that you've got. It's to make sure that you're developing your people so that you can continue being in business. And if you're not taking advantage of all the talent that is out there and you're diminishing people, you're not uh, bringing the best out in them, you're not giving them the opportunities to progress, you're a fool. It's just crazy. Yeah, no, 100%. You know, you've got to really understand that if you are not looking for the diversity, that you're not, you're not really embracing all of the people who you're even going to be servicing as customers. You know, the customers don't like to hear that, you know, it's a, it's a whole lineup of, of white guys and They want people who look like them and they're so much larger of a population out there. Additionally, you know, what's galling to me lately is a lot of the the DE&I events that are coming up. You know, how many times have I seen a panel of, okay, we've got some men, we've got some women, but you're having a conversation about DE&I without any women, any people of color on the panel. How are you having that conversation? Can you explain DE&I for the audience? Yeah, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Equity and inclusion, thank you. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to gloss over that subject, but we're short on time. 
So I'd like to move on to the next issue, which is blind spots. What are the blind spots that you've seen when you're building and managing teams? Yeah. So basically, you know, a lot of it is around like the pipeline leaks. And so after like SDRs get it over to the AE, what happens to it? Right. And identifying those gaps. So in a lot of cases, you know, account executives will go for the low hanging fruit. But the SDR teams putting in the work across the board, they're like to them, something that they've worked on like for 20 touches has as much value as, you know, the five touches. So obviously the account executive is going to work the best opportunities for them to actually close deals. The thing is everything else in the pipeline matters too. So without really taking a look at everything that is happening, what will happen is millions of dollars will just slip out of your pipeline without understanding what's transpired. So really getting into like pipeline velocity and understanding all of the places things are falling out, doing closed loss analysis. And even if it's not lost, but just sort of disappeared, where did it go? That happens, you know? There are a couple of things to pick up on there. The first one is in the handover, making sure that the call notes and the the handover is clear and that you're focused on speaking the same language so that when an SDR says you have a prospect, you know exactly what the definition of a prospect is. And they're not just handing over a suspect, or if they are, then it's clear. Pipeline velocity is absolutely uh, critical. Otherwise, your pipeline ends up looking like me, which is big at the top, big at the bottom. If the activity at the top of the funnel isn't supported by good middle of the hygiene pipeline and the results coming out at the bottom of the funnel aren't being mirrored by the activity, then it gives you a very clear indication of where you need to look for the problem at its cause and what you need to train and coach. And that needs to be what a manager spends a lot of their time doing when they're analyzing the data. The other thing that I've started to recognize and I've implemented with all of my clients is the conversion rate of first meeting to second meeting. That fallout rate on average is seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting, particularly at the C-suite level. Now, when you think how much it's cost you to get in front of a C-level executive, and you blow it as an AE seven out of eight times. KPMG did some research last year that suggested that out of an hour with a CXO in front of a salesperson, they only derive six minutes worth of value. Now, that is a travesty. And when you think about the amount of money that is being left on the table, is it any wonder that so many opportunities that could be viable end up in the no decision status quo? So I think it's really important to pay heed to all of these factors and really pay attention to the stuff that matters. Focus on the leading indicators, focus on reading the, uh, the right data. And also, I think a lot of organizations are being overwhelmed by big data. I think we should be looking at the small data. I think we should be looking at the tiny things that give you indications of trends. I think where the SDRs can really play a fabulously powerful part is in gathering intelligence and then sharing it 
and uh, getting involved with the AEs, getting involved with marketing, with management. And for managers then to take that information, pass it up the chain of command so that senior executives can be speaking to their peers to establish what is actually going on in the customer and prospects businesses. Because I think if you don't have that integration throughout the entire sales operation, all the way through to the senior executive contact with the customer, then you're missing out. Because at the end of the day, it's the buyer that makes the uh, decision. And if you don't understand what's driving their behavior and their purchase patterns, then you're missing out. What are your thoughts? No, 100%. And so many times, you know, you you see CEOs and executives that are a little disconnected from the rest of the organization. They have an idea of their head of how people buy as opposed to really getting with SDRs and, and the AEs and really understanding what is transpiring or not having that communication at a level of your SDRs are the first people that they're speaking to. They have a real understanding of, you know, why they're even on the phone with them, right? Why they've bothered to spend the time to the AE of what's, you know, what's now transpired. Having those insights is really important for any executive level and understanding what that process looks like, where you lose, where you win. All of it is that data is crucial for any organization. Excellent. Look, tell me, what are you struggling with at the moment? What are you wrestling with? You know, like I, I'm getting consulting and um, working some on some projects, but I'm also job hunting. So, you know, as I'm job hunting as well, because what I'd like to do is be a leader of a sales organization, you know, just getting more introductions. You know, I'm in, in lots of groups. I'm a mentor for Girls Club and I'm a founding member for Rev Genius. And I'm, I'm networking as much as I can, right? I'm like everywhere. I, I've got very full days ahead of me. But finding the, those right opportunities for me is something that I'm, I'm struggling with. Places that are open to, you know, maybe a woman leader, places that, you know, embrace diversity, you know, great companies that want to celebrate, you know, everyone's voices. So identifying those companies and then, you know, making my way in there, right. Getting in the doors. So I'm prospecting, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, what, what I'm finding with my clients, is they're proactively going after opportunities by creating vacancies for themselves. Because yeah. let's face it, virtually every sales leader is tearing out their hair because their salespeople aren't prospecting. And finding someone who actually picks up the phone and creates opportunities for themselves, that has to be a great starting point. Fabulous. Yes. Tell me, have you ever been blindsided? Oh, yes, I have been blindsided. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's funny since I've been blindsided in my life a, a number of times, you know, it, I'm pretty typical. I, I work on getting buy-in in advance and get everyone on board, make sure that everyone's all on the same page. And, and, you know, there have been cases where after the fact they, you know, they changed their mind and that's, that's going to happen. People are people and that's okay. 
But at the end of the day, it's how you handle it and how you react that really defines you and and your character, right? I think one of the things that um, I've learned through the work that I do is preempt that with a post-sell step. So give them an opportunity to back out at the point of sale and say, Jen, are you absolutely sure you want to do this? I know earlier on, and then you might raise a pre-existing objection or uh, you might ask the question, look, give me one reason why this will go south. Give me one reason why you guys will back out. Push for that to uncover it because if they're in front of you, it's much easier then to deal with it. But if you get the Dear John email, it's not you, it's me, and being dumped by text or email, it's very difficult to get back in. So encourage through a post-sale step the prospect to back out and make sure that those earlier conversations, those earlier objections are raised again so that they don't come to blow up in your face later. So that's certainly been one of the, because I've had to learn the hard way as well. Um, Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, so the example I was thinking of was something that was personal. And I hadn't even considered about how I've been blindsided in sales and the steps that I've taken there to apply them to my personal life in a way where I would know what to do when I was blindsided. So that was probably the most useful tip I got today. <laughs> well, sales is just a microcosm of life, isn't it? You know, yes, it, it is. It, it just, it, sales reflects life. And yeah. if, you, if you understand that what we actually teach people is a human communication model, that's all selling is, then you can apply it in any environment. Now, that's amazing. Thank you. Fabulous. I'm, I'm glad it's been useful. <laughs> so tell me, what are you being influenced by? What do you read, watch, listen to that you think other people should pay heed to? Yeah. So I, um, I love the book Rebel Talents. That's a good one. And um, see what else. I listen to a lot of podcasts. You know, I'm obviously a fan of yours, but I follow uh, Dale Dupree. You did an awesome interview with him um, not that long ago, as well as Never Split the Difference, which we talked about. Big fan of John Barrows, Morgan Ingram, Nikki Ivey, I'm a big fan of. She's been participating in some amazing webinars about diversity that, you know, really helped open my eyes. Someone, Scott Ingram posted the other day, a list of all the top podcasts. And I had responded with, you know, which ones have 30% different people, you know, of like people of color or women. And I actually got that number from her and some information that she had sent me over about, you know, just like to, in order for anyone who is the only in the room, right, to feel like they're heard, that there needs to be 30%, you know, different people or people like them in order to feel like comfortable, like completely comfortable sharing. So that's where that 30% came from. So I'm working on creating a list of all the ones that have all the podcasts that have diversity, which I think will be pretty interesting. So, you know, I have so much so many different people who inspire me. I'm one of those people who gets up at the crack of dawn. We're talking four o'clock in the morning and walk my neighborhood listening to, to podcasts and audiobooks. And I love to learn and get different insights. So I could probably give you a list of like a hundred people. <laughs> uh, 
Fabulous. So if you had a golden ticket and you could whisper in the ear of your idiot self, age 23, who thought they knew, knew better, what advice would you give, Jen? Yeah, to always stand up for yourself. When I look back over my career and, you know, I've been in the workforce for over 25 years now. I think about the times that I regret the most or the times that I didn't, I didn't stand up for myself. So to just use your backbone. (laughs) Well, there's a really interesting exercise that we teach, which is to understand your bill of rights. And I, I did a video on this, which has been one of my more successful ones. But if you don't know you have rights, then when someone tramples all over them, you can't uh, you can't stand up and say, well, hang on a second, this is unacceptable. And it's one of the first things I teach all of my clients, that they have rights as sellers, as managers, as executives. And if they don't understand what they are, then they will allow other people to ride roughshod over them. And that's where bullies are able to bully because no one sets a boundary. And if you establish those rights, then you can introduce those rights in terms of what's acceptable and not acceptable behavior right at the outset of the sales relationship. And that's incredibly powerful because then both sides know what's acceptable and what isn't. And there are no surprises because I think buyers are always looking for the bait and switch and the smokescreen. And if you're somebody who's very clear about what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, what intended outcome you're mutually working towards, then it makes it much more comfortable for the buyer. And it also means that both sides know exactly where you are, why you're there, what's going to happen at the end, and what's going to happen next. So that's been one of my big takeaways over the last 35 years of essentially messing up on a regular basis. I would definitely have to check out that video. I hadn't seen it yet. I'll, I'll send you the link. I'll attach it. So tell me this. How can we get hold of you? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find Jen Ferguson. I'm at Sales911. You can find me there easily. You can also find me in the National Association of Women Sales Professionals Tribe. If you want to know more about that, you can contact me about that if you're not there. Uh, also, I'm a girls club mentor. So if you're interested in girls club, you can find me uh, over there. And then on Rev Genius as uh, one of the founding members, which is a sales and marketing community where everyone wants to level up and, and really bring their best selves to the table, right? Excellent. And you're on LinkedIn as well, I guess. Yes, LinkedIn. Yes, Sales911. It actually is Sales911 at the end of the little I-N slash. Fabulous. Jen Ferguson, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you feel that you would be a good guest or you know someone who would be, then please email me at marcuscauchy at me.com or m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.